Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to The Educated Home Buyer, where our guide is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. So in last episode, we actually finished it kind of cut off. We were talking about commonly asked questions with regards to you know, buying a home, some of the questions that Josh gets, I get, and we wanted to take some time and go through that process with you, but it ended up being a little bit longer than I think we had originally anticipated. So what we're going to do today is give you the rest of uh, that conversation with, you know, with Josh and I and those commonly asked questions. So last episode, we talked about credit. We talked about down payment. We touched on a couple of different things. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check episode, I believe it's 25. Listen to the first part of the episode, and then you can tune back into this where today we're going to talk about employment and some of the other just, just questions that we get, random questions with regards to home buying and really guide you through that process. So Josh, why don't we start about employment? You know, let's talk, what do you need, right? Some of the questions we get are, I just got a job or I just got out of college or I haven't worked in six months. I'm on disability, whatever it is. So let's, let's start there and, uh, and help our audience become educated homebuyers. So this one's interesting. The, the internet is super cool for stuff like this. People that want to educate themselves can search um, and find articles. They can find YouTube videos. They can find podcasts going through all of this stuff. Um, but what I find is when you try and find the answer and you're not in the business, um, you get an answer that's not necessarily a wrong answer, but not the answer that applies to your specific situation. So everyone kind of knows in air quotes there that uh, you need a two-year work history but there are a number of exceptions there are times when gaps of employment are okay and times when they are not okay uh, and coming off of covid where a lot of people had work disruptions in 2020 and some even into 2021 um, there's some flexibilities around that so Kind of to give you a big overview, why does an, a, a lender want a two-year work history? Because they want to know that you have a steady, stable income and ability to stay employed. And if you're self-employed, it's even more important because that it, you're not guaranteed a paycheck every month. And not even just self-employed, a lot of people have variable income. What's variable income? overtime that's not the same every month, commissions that depend on how much you sell, bonuses that may be on performance or company performance, those things are variable and we need a history to know what they look like over time versus just what they were last month. So what are some of the most common exceptions uh, to needing that two-year work history? One that we get a lot um, is Family Medical Leave Act. We used to say maternity leave, but um, now I have a lot of fathers that, that uh, take that, that leave time um, and that's totally acceptable, whatever amount of time that you take. What we do in that situation is we look back and we get a two year work history back before the gap. So let's say a, a mother takes two years off, the first two years with, with her child, she's been back to work for two weeks, but we can show that for five years or two years prior to uh, taking the leave, we had the work history and we've gone back to that job. We can absolutely use that income. So family medical leave is a super common one. Um, let's say for any reason, 
that someone had a, a period of time off of work. COVID was was common. Someone, you know, uh, employer hard hit and they just furlough everyone for like six months. So we have a six month gap of employment. If we get back on the job, the big one that has an issue with that is FHA. FHA requires us to have a full six months on the job. I'm going to say other programs like jumbo loans um, or maybe portfolio lenders that are writing their own guidelines, not selling to Fannie Freddie, could also require a period of time like six months on the job. But if we're back on the job with, with a Fannie Freddie loan, that gap can be uh, acceptable. And a lot of it, again, comes down to, do you have a fixed income, meaning a salary or an hourly rate at 40 hours? Looked at very differently than variable income with those gaps. So with all that said, Jeb, probably the, the last one, the one that does come up a lot, a lot of people have gone back to school, um, finished a degree. We have folks that are just getting out of school and wanting to buy, their parents want to help them buy. Your... Um, degree certificate it doesn't have to be college um, there are programs you know, that are that require certificate apprenticeship things um, that you are being trained to generate the income uh, that can be your work history so if someone graduates college in june and they get a job in july and they want a loan in august hey i only have a one month work history well that four years in college or even two years with an associate's degree can be the two-year work history so again when people try to educate themselves and jump online and and check that stuff out a lot of times they'll find a hard and fast answer which a lot of this is a gray area and it comes down to how you can package it and which loan program you're going to go with um, in that situation now what about the great resignation josh where people have not really, you know, not the resignation, but the fact, you know, we've had a lot of people change careers over the last couple of years. You know, my boss is mean to me. I don't like working for him. I'm going to go become self-employed or I don't like this job anymore. I'm going to go do this. So how does that relate? Because what my understanding is in, in employment, you need something that's in the same line of work. So I can't go from being, you know, a mortgage loan officer to being a personal trainer or a barista at Starbucks because I like talking to people and then you know, qualify for a loan or am I wrong in, in assuming that, or is, is that some, again, some truth to that? there's definitely some truth to it, but it's a gray area. So let's talk about one of the first things you said, let's say uh, you've been working and you're in this uh, economy and your boss is being a jerk and you're like, Hey, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go start my own company. That's problematic for qualifying for a loan. You may be doing great. Your, your business could come out the blocks hot and you're making $10,000 a month. We don't have a history of that business being in existence and making that money. And most importantly, we don't have a tax return filed uh, with the IRS confirming that income. When your employer gives you a pay stub, we know that that person, that can be validated. We know that that company paid you that money. You can create a PL that says anything. You can go in QuickBooks, you can go in Excel and create a PL that says, I made $48,000 in the last two and a half months that I started my business. Until it's filed with the IRS, most lenders are not going to accept that. So at least one full year on, on a tax return, um, preferably two years if you're going from working to self-employed. Now let's say we go the other direction. We have someone um, that they had a job, they're a CPA, and they decide, I'm going to go start my own practice. And they're just not good at drumming up business. Very great at, at doing taxes, not great at uh, drumming up business. So they're not making enough money, and they decide, hey, I'm going to go take a job uh, with the CPA firm across the street, and they're going to pay me $100,000 a year salary. 
we can use that immediately. You're in the same line of work. You gave up the, the self-employment because you weren't good at it. And now we have a salaried job with a committed income from another business. We can use that. So remember, it's always okay to go from self-employed to employed, um, as long as it's a fixed income and not variable income there. But going the other direction from employed by someone else to self-employed is an, is an issue. Now you had brought up something totally different there. If you're in a line of work, use the example of mortgage loan officer, not as many refis this year, they decide they're gonna go become a personal trainer might be okay, might not be. Let's say that personal trainer is paid by the session. Uh, they're, they're employed by 24-hour fitness. They get minimum wage plus however many sessions they book. That's variable. We don't have a history of it. We don't know how many sessions they book. That would be problematic. Let's say that mortgage loan officer who's in sales now goes over and they get a job at the, the car dealership and they're in sales. Again, we're gonna have an issue there because it's a new type of sales and we don't know how much um, they're going to be able to sell and what they're going to make. We could give them their base um, if, if it's minimum wage or if they have a $40,000 a year base, but the variable portion would be really hard to use. So maybe let's use a, a different example. A nurse decides, you know what? Blood and guts isn't for me. I don't like this. Um, and they get a job in medical billing. They're kind of related, but not really related. Right. Um, we can make a case for that. If the employer thought the person was qualified for the job and they're gonna pay them $60,000 a year, $80,000 a year for that, we should be able to use that income. So you're probably starting to see here that there's not as much hard and fast rules as you would think. They are, but there's a little gray area, a little bit of wiggle room. And Jeb, we've talked about this on the show before and definitely on the live. My job as a loan officer, is really as an editor of your story. You write the story. And what I really want is for you as a borrower to spill it all out. Give me everything. I'm gonna edit, polish, clean it up so that when the reader, the underwriter looks at it, it tells the story that they wanna hear that this loan meets the guidelines. And this is sort of where the, the art of qualifying people comes in versus just saying, this is hard and fast what the guideline says. Got it. So I think that was a really good explanation there. Now, what, what about gaps of employment? What about if you've been laid off, you're not currently working, say now, uh, but you have a good work history, you have a down payment. I mean, that's something that I, I, I guess, you know, when I was back in the loan business, you know, some time ago, is people would say, hey, listen, I don't, you know, currently have a job, but I've got a lot of money in the bank, right? Is, is that you know, can you get around the employment thing when you have large down payments and you, you know, and or let's talk about the, the same topic that I that I started with. And that's like the gaps of employment, the potential of being laid off. How does that play into it? The income is going to be usable or not usable. Uh, a lender, other than if it's like a portfolio lender, a local bank that is making their own decisions on it. Um, the, the guidelines are the guidelines. So for Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA, the income is either going to be usable or it's not. It's not going to be that, hey, with 5% down, we can't use your income. With 50% down, we're okay using that income. So again, the gaps, the biggest one, the one that is going to be the most strict on that is, is FHA. If you have a gap of employment more than six months, we need six months back on the job. Um, with Fannie and Freddie, it, 
it's sort of, it's not case by case, but you're looking at how long was the gap? How long have they been back on the job? Is it a fixed income, either a fixed hourly rate, a salary of some sort? So, um, and it also depends on the reason for, for being out of work. Again, lenders were a little bit more flexible coming through COVID knowing that, that things happened. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's going to come down to the relative strength of the file. So if someone has 20% down in an 800 credit score and they didn't work for the last year and a half, the reason may be, hey, I didn't like my old job. Um, uh, my father was not doing well and I knew he was going to be gone. I wanted to spend the last year and a half caring for him. So something like that and you, you can document care. it. I'm just saying, but you know, something like that that you can document are valid reasons. And it could be less deep. Someone says, I wanted to go to Tibet and find myself, but they had the ability <laughs> to you know deep too. Well, that's deep too. Uh, how about I just wanted to sit on Netflix and watch shows for a year? Like that's if, my so thing. If, if you if you have a 580 credit score and you had a, a string of crappy jobs before that, it's probably not okay. If you had 10 years on one job and you went back to the same line of work and you're making the same or more money and your credit score was great and you you lived off of savings that you still have nice savings that's where the big picture comes into play um, versus just saying hard and fast yes this is okay no this is not but fha is the big one that we need six months back on the job after a six month or more gap of employment and then how about disability uh permanent disability getting disability income can i use that income to help me qualify i got hurt on the job i you know i'm not really making my salary is that an opportunity to to use that or so, am i screwed Here's here's the the rule for any income is we have to have a continuance uh, a likelihood of continuance for three years very very hard to determine with temporary disability so if you have a permanent disability the most common one that we see um, veterans with disability ratings the the VA when we get their certificate of eligibility it's, this person has a sixty percent disability rating they get twenty one hundred dollars a month for the rest of their life totally usable. If someone is getting disability from the state of California and it's because they hurt their back while they were working construction two months ago and they could be back in two months, they could be back in two years, we don't really know. So you kind of brought up a really good point there, Jeb, with other types of income that need to continue for three years. You and I had a, you and I had a, a client about two years ago that um, got divorced and she had five years of alimony in there. So it was about a year after the divorce that she bought. So we were cool. We had four years left. But if she had come to us a year and a half later and we had two and a half years, we wouldn't have been able to use that income to to qualify her. I have another client that we did a refi for a few months ago, and she's wanting to refi out of that FHA loan to get rid of mortgage insurance because her credit scores have gone up. But one, she has three kids. One, we couldn't use the child support for in the spring because they were 16 and we only have two years left until they turn 18. Another one is going to be over 15 and we're going to lose that here in the next three or four months. So despite the fact that rates are higher, there's some urgency for her to, to make that move. So things, things like that, we want to know that they're going to continue for, for three plus years. It could be a simple, I mean, crazy example, someone wins the lottery and they get the 20 year uh, annuity payout, but there's only two years left on it. We can't use it. If there's five years left, no problem. And this may sound crazy to you. We're talking about a 30 year no, loan. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? We're talking about a 30 year loan and they only require the likelihood of continuance for three three years and some of these things like i've literally closed a loan for someone whose child support is going to go away in three and a half years that's no, nuts but and, it works and you say crazy in that sense i mean i've also had loans where people were buying a property for example and had you know a couple million dollars in the bank and we're looking to buy a property and the you know the underwriter is scrutinizing the income and it's like 
they could buy 10 of these houses. I mean, so at the end of the day, what, what you have to understand as a listener, as, as someone going through the process, Josh, the loan officer you're, you're talking to, isn't making the decisions. In fact, they're on your team. They're trying to get you to the finish line. And oftentimes I feel like buyers, when you have conversations with them, they're mad at you for, for requesting this stuff. And it's, you know, me being on, on the outside, it's easy for me to say, listen, it's not that guy. It's the person on the inside that's actually working on behalf of the bank to protect the bank, just to make sure you're, you know, you are exactly what they say you are. So. Yeah, and the the income situation, there are some things that we can do. Um, we can annuitize that income. So again, that borrower worth a couple million bucks, um, we can take that, divide it across 240 months for a Freddie Mac loan and turn that into income for qualifying purposes. Um, but it's kind of like you said, if you had a super spotty employment record, um, it doesn't mean they're going to use your your income just because you have a bunch of money in, in the bank. So um, a lot of what we do doesn't necessarily make sense uh, to home buyers and borrowers, but it is our job to know all those guidelines and to know the nuances between each program and, and when to use them. The lady that I told you about, we did the refi in the spring. She had a weird situation where they had a private loan that she didn't know her husband had taken it out and they bought the home from their boss, his boss. Both the boss and the husband passed away, but there had been a balloon payment. The family who inherited the note on that property discovered that there was a balloon and they could call it due. They did. So like at a moment's notice, she's like, I didn't know I had to pay this thing off. So the only way we could make that thing work was FHA. Even though she had 60% equity in the home, we had to go that route. So my job is to know, you might think this is the best loan for me, but if you can't qualify for it, it's really what is the best loan that you actually qualify for. And best is a really loaded term because it's really optimal versus best. We're weighing a million different things. And my job is to know what you qualify for, present them all to you and enable you to make the best decision for you and your family. Good stuff. So um, here's what I'd like to do now. I think we should do is maybe kind of go over some of these commonly asked questions that we get, right? So now we've talked about in the first episode, credit, um, down payment necessary. Now we've talked about employment, which are really the three major pieces of the puzzle. But some of the commonly asked questions we get are, you know, with regards to, to how long pre-approvals are good for, Josh. So let's just start there. I get pre-approved now. Maybe I'm not looking to buy a house immediately, but I go through the pre-approval process you know, and I don't find a house for six months, five months, whatever it is. It, it, do I need to go through it again? How does that work? Well, this is this is probably one of, if not the most common questions I get. At least three times a week, I'm I'm answering this question. You and I currently have a client who's been out looking for over a year. So, is there unfortunately, pre unfortunately is there pre-approval not valid because it's a year old? No, it's fine. What matters is the underlying information and documentation. So a credit report is good for 120 days. So technically after 120 days um, to give you that pre-approval, we should pull a new credit report. Now the borrower in question here has an 810 credit score and a 20% DTI because they have no debt and they make good income. I'm not gonna pull a new credit report until we have a property or until we get really close to it. Their pre-approval is still valid because we have a conversation. Hey, did you borrow any additional money? Did you run up a credit card, buy a car, go on vacation, any of that stuff? Nope, everything's identical, just the same. So now what about the other documentation in the file? 
pay stub needs to be within 30 days of the loan application. So um, again, it comes down to how sketchy is the income? Are we gonna refresh that every 30 days? Or this gentleman's a teacher. His income's been the same every year for the last five years. I don't need to update that all the time. I just say, are you still working on the same job? Yes, cool. Um, bank statements need to be within 60 days. This borrower again, plenty of money. He could you know, put five down payments on this home. So I'm not gonna go and say, hey, I need updated bank statements. I'm going to ask and say, still have the same amount of money in the bank? Yep, all right, cool. Here's the new updated pre-approval package to submit with your offer. Now, who is that different for? Again, someone with sketchy income, someone who uh, we need $21,000 to close. And last time we looked at the bank statement, they had $19,000. Hey, do we have an updated statement? Do you have more or less? Were there big giant deposits in there that could be problematic for us? Um, that's that's really what we're looking for. It's as long as you know that nothing has changed. I, I wish I had it here in front of me. We have a client who hopefully, fingers crossed, is getting an offer accepted on a property today that um, the income was not, the income was was sketchy. They make very good money, but it was a weird income history. So I didn't want to get it into escrow and then have a lender have a problem with that income. So we actually had a full pre-approval from the lender and their verbiage in there was really cool. It basically said, this pre-approval is dependent on no material changes in credit, um, debt, outstanding debts, assets, or income and employment. That's really what we're looking at. As long as there's no underlying changes, that's gonna be good for as long as it takes for you to find a home. So again, if you're a little dicier, we're gonna update and be, be tighter on updating and keeping uh, additional new documentation in the file. If you're gold-plated and your situation is super simple, we're probably just gonna ask you a few questions before we send Jeb or your agent uh, a new, uh, new pre-approval package. Uh, with that, is it, is, there, is, there a, is it ever too soon to start that pre-approval process. I mean, I would say this, right? I mean, I think Josh, in, in talking to people, you as a potential buyer need to know some things your own. You need to know that you have some money in the bank, that you, you know, you need to know that you have some credit, you know, you need to know that you're employed. I mean, you can't just not have any of this stuff and call and expect a pre-approval or what have you. So let's assume that you you kind of have the things that we've discussed in in the last two episodes here. Is there a time too early to, to start that? I don't, I don't think so. I will, people will tell me, hey, I think it's too early for us to get pre-approved. I don't want to waste your time. It's never a waste of my time. We're building a relationship that whether you close on a home in 30 days or like the client we were talking about in a year, year and a half, that's a relationship we're going to have. And that's going to be the first transaction. Hopefully we're going to do five more across your lifetime. So is it ever too early to start that? No, that's from my perspective. It's never a waste of my time. From your perspective as a borrower, potential borrower, why is that not a waste of your time? That is not a waste of your time because you're going to get a bunch of additional information. There's three primary things that the pre-approval gives you that you want to know. What is my maximum purchase price slash loan amount? How much money do I have to have so you know if you have it or how you can go get it? And what is my monthly payment and do I feel like I can afford it? Um, we talked about this before, Jeb. People always ask me, well, how much can I afford? Got no idea what you can afford. I can tell you what you can qualify for. So when we finish that pre-approval, I'm gonna tell you, here's what I can qualify you for. When you look at that, you're gonna say, yes, I have that much money. Yes, I can afford that monthly payment. And yes, I can find homes in that price range in the areas that I'm looking at. For me on my end, 
I want to see that credit report so that we know where the credit scores are to give you accurate terms when we're projecting what that monthly payment is going to look like. But we're also going to look, is there anything in there that could be problematic for us that we can start working on now? Is there anything in the employment history that could be problematic that we can be working on now? Um, that's the thing. So even if you're six months out, I say, let's do the pre-approval now. Um, knowing that we're going to have to get a new credit report. We just talked about that credit report is only good for 120 days. We'll have to update documentation. We'll have to get a new credit report. But the certainty that you get now and the planning that you can do over the next 90, 180, 360 days, I believe that certainty and knowledge and information is well worth it. We started off the show by talking about the internet's amazing. People can go research everything, but you're not an expert loan officer and the person writing the article may or may not be an expert loan officer, but they can't cover every scenario. So we want the right answers for you and your specific situation. Never too early to get that. And one thing you mentioned there, I think before we wrap this up, running credit. Um, I think one of the misconceptions I've heard many, many times over my career is you know, in shopping lenders and talking to multiple people and getting pre-approved now and then getting pre-approved again in six months because, you know, I didn't find a house or whatever you having to rerun my credit, it's going to affect my credit score. Is that true? Is it not true? How does, you know, how does that work? So for borrowers with good credit, 700 and above, um, we're talking uh, a one to three point hit to credit for having that inquiry and it will go away over time. Um, where inquiries get this bad rap of, of banging someone's credit score is people with lower credit scores who are maxed on their credit, who are going out and have 10 inquiries on credit cards. They may or may not be taking them out. They may or may not be opening these new accounts. That stuff can, can have a pretty big impact. A mortgage is looked at differently than revolving debt and everything in your credit file goes into that. So I will ask my clients, what do you expect that credit score to look like? And if they say, oh, it's gonna be about 625, 630, we're gonna think twice about pulling that inquiry if they're further off in the future. Mm -hmm. We can do a soft pull. A soft pull will give us a simulated credit score. It'll allow us to see what's on there. Um, generally, it's only a one bureau for that soft pull. So it's not as good, but for 95% of clients, an inquiry, single mortgage inquiry is nothing to worry about. And if you're, you know, we go on the internet and we see people talk about, hey, you need to shop for a mortgage. Um, it, it's the a very good way to make sure you're not getting taken advantage of. It's not the most important thing. We will go through this in another episode that shopping for the lowest rate is a recipe for for getting yourself in trouble when you prioritize just the rate. But shopping can be good just so you know what the range is, that you're getting the right answers. And with that, you have a 45 day window to pull as many mortgage credit reports as you want. I would keep it definitely under 30. Um, and if you're trying to compare numbers, get them all on the same day. But um, in terms of the inquiry, they're, they're labeled as a mortgage inquiry when I or any other mortgage lender pull it, any of them within a 45 day window, but try and keep it shorter will be treated as a single inquiry. So you can compare among lenders. Good stuff. Um, so hopefully if you're listening, this information was helpful. If this is the first episode you're listening to, again, I'd ask you to go back and check episode uh, 25, where we've discussed the first part of this series of commonly asked questions. Um, and if you're listening to this, you need a lender, you're anywhere in the United States and you want to talk to a lender, go through that pre-approval process. There is a link in the description below. Somebody that we know, like, and trust can guide you through that process. And if you like what we're doing here, you like the content, what I'd ask is that you rate and review us. Um, wherever you listen to us, uh, it does help. It helps more people get, you know, 
um, the information helps more people see us and we appreciate that. And lastly, I'd ask if you have questions, uh, things we didn't address, you want to talk to Josh or I, there are emails also in the description, um, you know, and we're open for content ideas as well. So we appreciate you being here. We, uh, you know, appreciate all the support. We will uh, see you very soon. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.